Welcome to the No Normal. The No Normal Podcast is a special presentation coming to you from New Music Edmonton. This podcast will form a kind of anchor for NME's planned season of digital events. In the months ahead, we will bring new episodes to you on a regular basis, each offering an array of conversations, music, and special features. Thank you for joining us. Check out our website, newmusicedmonton.ca, and find us on social media for more information about this podcast and other New Music Edmonton programming. New Music Edmonton respectfully acknowledges that this celebration of creativity was produced on Treaty 6 territory. Amiskwachiwaskaigan is the traditional gathering place of the many indigenous peoples whose histories, languages, and cultures continue to influence and enrich our community. We further acknowledge that it was the indigenous peoples of Treaty 6 who established the principles for, and have remained exemplars of, the respectful and caring use of this land for the purposes of art, livelihood, and spirituality. It is from these principles that New Music Edmonton has sought and will continue to seek partnerships, inspiration, and learning. I'm Oscar Zibart, host of NME's The No Normal, a special two-hour limited-run podcast series. Welcome to our inaugural episode. New Music Edmonton has been hard at work over the last months planning new ways of presenting the latest in innovative music and sonic art. We're excited to offer a season full of new work and new ways of experiencing it. We have a lot of great things planned and an amazing roster of artists creating new projects. The old normal is gone. The new normal is no normal. Among our biggest projects of the season is a new commissioning program, New Music for the No Normal. With the generous sponsorship of the Edmonton Arts Council, New Music Edmonton is commissioning a dozen local artists to create new classical, audio, and audiovisual works We'll be previewing them on the podcast or the first three episodes, and they will be available for further listening on our SoundCloud and Vimeo pages. For our first episode, we'll feature five of those new creations alongside their creators, Rio Ull, Raylene Campbell, George Andrix, Bouyash Noypen, and Caitlin Shian Richards. We'll also have a feature interview with one of Edmonton's major figures in new music, Alison Balchetis, the outgoing New Music Edmonton president. First, though, chat with the current artistic director of New Music Edmonton, Ian Crutchley. I spoke with Ian recently to hear some of the latest news about NME and to discover some of the things we can expect from the organization in the next little while. So for those not familiar with New Music Edmonton, can you tell us a little bit more about the organization and its history, please? Absolutely. So New Music Edmonton is pretty much the central new music organization in Edmonton right now. We have been in operation in under one name or another for about 35 years. It began its trajectory as a collective of composers who were simply looking for a way to get their pieces performed. Over the years since then, we've evolved from that into a lot broader spectrum of kinds of music that we perform and um, present. We have uh, not only classical compositions, but electronic music, free improvisation. We do lots of work with interdisciplinary organizations, so there's a lot of dance and things like that. We're very, uh, very focused, especially on Edmonton artists, but we also do bring in artists from other cities and uh, occasionally from other countries as well. 
Now, given the state of the world and the arts during the COVID era, NME has taken a bold new direction for its 2020 and 2021 season with the debut of No Normal and the No Normal podcast. So what precipitated the creation of this podcast series and what can people expect from it? As with so many arts organizations, when, you know, if I'm thinking back to March, which it seems like 200 years ago and it seems like two weeks ago at the same time, it's a very strange situation we're in. We were um, two weeks away from our festival in 2020. Things started to get real, as it were, about uh, the pandemic. And we started to realize that it was becoming impractical to even think of doing a live festival at that time. We knew sort of restrictions were coming, almost certainly. So we canceled the festival. The next step, which came very soon after that, was to cancel the rest of last season, which would have been events leading up until the end of June. We spent a lot of the late spring and early summer talking about what this season would be like. We were pretty sure that it was unwise to plan on live events. And and one of the reasons is that live events, by necessity, of course, we have to rent venues. But we also, in some cases, were looking at people coming in from other cities. And in one case, another country. That just didn't seem like a thing that was possible the arts granting organizations, Canada Council and Edmonton Arts Council and so on, fund a lot of the travel and touring for Canadian artists. And all of those touring and travel programs have been postponed for the time being. So starting to shape together, you know, what can we do in the absence of live events? Let's go digital. With regards to the podcast, we started to talk about what could we use as a sort of a central focus And a podcast just seems like a great opportunity to put a whole bunch of stuff together that reflects on um, some of the artists we're featuring. It would include some of the music and other things that they're working on. Dividing the season into sort of interesting sort of segments of two months each, perhaps. We could then have a podcast for each of those. Yeah, so that's kind of where the idea for the podcast came from. Will the content as a result of the shift to digital for this season's enemy programming be noticeably different from those in previous seasons, or is it going to be a similar sound to what previous audiences have come to expect? One of the things we're doing this season that is, is a lot different is that we're, we're rechanneling our resources towards commissioning new work from people a lot more than we have in the past. Pretty much everything that we're going to be presenting this year is going to be something that we've asked somebody to make from scratch whether it be the short two and a half minute pieces that we'll be listening to today, or in some cases, some longer pieces. Also, possibly later in the season, some live streaming performances and things like that. So it gives us an opportunity to bring together a lot more people in terms of artistic content. Also to give people um, the support that they need as artists to come up with a new idea and maybe to, to present something to us that they might not have been able to think of if they had been you know, focused entirely on coming to Edmonton or putting on a live show in Edmonton. When we cancelled our events, we were fortunately in a position where we could actually pay all of the artists in full, whatever fees they were going to be getting from us for the performances. And we also paid all of our temporary staff as well. So we were in a good position to do that. Not everybody is. And um, they're all being paid according to standard professional fee rates, which is something that we, we emphasize when we're compensating artists. And so with that, there's going to be some new classical compositions, some electroacoustic compositions, and also a couple of audiovisual ones. Touring might sound glamorous to some people. <laughs> um, quite often what we're faced with in Edmonton is that 
just to be extreme, an artist that might, for example, be from the, the East Coast of Canada or even from Europe has to somehow find their way here for one performance here and maybe another performance in another city. But what we can do with digital, we can have artists from all over the place do pieces for us. And there's not really any restrictions on travel, no worries about what time they have to come in or that they have to spend $1,200 on an airplane ticket or snowstorms, cellos being lost by the airline, you know, those kinds of things. So so there are some, some interesting benefits. And in terms of artistic content, we are hoping that for a lot of the artists, just suggesting to them that they can stay at home and create their piece might lead them to some thinking about things they haven't had a chance to do before. So by changing the workspace itself, you might foster a kind of creativity that would have been prohibited from the, yeah. the concert space or the art space uh, in, in the traditional sense. Exactly, yeah. Speaking of the artists that are going to be involved in this first season of No Normal, who can we look forward to encountering uh, on the podcast throughout the year? On today's podcast, there's going to be six artists that are interviewed. One of them will be Alison Balchettis, who is um, actually the outgoing president of New Music Edmonton. Then there's five people from the No Normal project that we have funded by the Edmonton Arts Council. I had the, the pleasure of doing the interviews with them, which was a lot of fun. Getting to speak to five artists in, a, in only space of a week is actually really great. It's a nice, inspiring thing to do. So each of them has different kinds of music. George and Rio have both written instrumental pieces. Caitlin has an audiovisual piece. Oyash and Raylene both have electroacoustic pieces. So they are, they're sort of a good sample of the kinds of things that are coming up. From that project alone, um, there's another seven pieces to come later in the season. We have some excellent projects coming up on the solstice in December, the equinox in March, and the solstice in June. We'll announce a little bit more about those as we get further into the season. I can tell you a little bit about the, um, the December one, which will actually be focused on poetry and sound. So we've asked three um, really prominent Edmonton poets, Brandon Wint, Nisha Patel, and Shima Robinson, to each pair up with a musician and of their choice and to put together a 15-minute new piece that's based on their texts and, uh, and the sounds of the musician they're working with. So that'll happen right on December 21st. We also have two outings of our, our New Music Edmonton Now Hear This festival. Since we had to cancel the one in March, it seemed like a good idea to have a little extra one this year. So we've got a smaller one in probably be later November or very early in December. And then another one just around the start of spring in March. So there's all sorts of people coming up. We have a lot of artists from Edmonton and uh, other artists from the rest of Canada. And so it's a, it's a pretty exciting event. There's um, a huge number of the percentage of the people that we're presenting have not actually done anything for New Music Edmonton before. So we're, we're pretty happy to, to be giving them their New Music Edmonton debut, as it were. Right on. Well, it sounds like there's a lot of exciting stuff, both for the for, for the established audiences and for new audiences, uh, a little bit of something different and a little bit of something familiar. And it's also exciting to hear that there's going to be a programming and events outside of the podcast itself so that there will be mm-hmm. additional content and additional opportunities to catch more great artistic statements and more artistic output from uh, great Edmonton and Canadian artists. 
Ian Crutchley from New Music Edmonton, our artistic director who is responsible for the uh, sound of many of the things you're going to be hearing in this first episode and beyond, because as you mentioned, Ian is doing a lot of the interviews. We'll be hearing more from him later on in the program and throughout the series. Ian, great catching up with you, and uh, you stay safe. Take care, and we'll talk to you soon. This is the No Normal Podcast from New Music Edmonton, and I am your host, Oscar Zebart. That was an introductory conversation between myself and Ian Crutchley, Artistic Director of New Music Edmonton. I'm excited to now introduce one of the first no-normal artists alongside their new commission. Thlin de Vier is an audiovisual work by Caitlin Shion Richards, whose audio-video pieces have recently been shown at Mile Zero Dance, Fava Fest, God a Minute Film Festival, Metro Cinema, and Found Festival. In 2019, she was commissioned by the Edmonton Arts Council to create a series of short video animations to play on the screens in LRT stations across Edmonton. Caitlin performs in the violin-viola duo The Olm and hosts the weekly radio show Imaginary Landscapes on CJSR. She also happens to be one of the creators of this podcast. Let's listen to the audio side of her piece first, followed by a conversation between Caitlin and artistic director Ian Crutchley. When the pandemic first started, I, I noticed there was this increase in productivity. Like, I think it was a lot of just seeing my peers as well, um, 
kind of doing things that they never had time to do before. So I did find myself doing, you know, like returning a lot more to still lifes and just drawing every day. And I think that was something I kind of, that kind of fell in my routine for a little bit. I quickly found that that productivity, I wasn't really sure if that was the right, I don't know, just the fact that we suddenly had this time um, and having to be productive, I didn't really know if that's coming from the right place. So I took a little break and then I, I, but I realized during that time that I actually needed to draw. So I was having insomnia a lot. And so I did find, you know, I would be waking up in the middle of the night, like, Oh, what's happening? Like, is this really happening right now? Um, so I would go sit on the balcony and I, I found that there was a kind of a shift. I wasn't being outwardly productive, but I think I was listening and observing a lot more. And so I started doing more sound drawing just based on the sounds I was hearing on the balcony because just because like of the the halt of traffic anytime there was a car it would be out of place I could hear the train yard all the way on the you know kind of that area around the yellowhead and then I would also be woken up by this very strange loud humming sound so I was just suddenly very interested in listening more. Do you think we've come out of a world that was overemphasizing productivity for artists? Yeah, absolutely. Just comparing myself to what other people are doing, I, I definitely feel like that really hurts creativity. And I always feel like sitting is where the best ideas come, come from. Just having that pause, that constant productivity, you don't actually sit and observe and, and think about the real, like where those fundamentals come from, of, of um, you know, visual fundamentals or, or the ability to observe and listen. When you have somebody else asking for a new work with particular parameters described, does something happen that gets you going? Yeah, I think having parameters helps make something click for me. Um, I definitely work better with parameters. Yeah, I think giving like the very the time limit on the piece that um, for me I was a, a new challenge, and I think something that you were talking about about um, like how there's so many distractions from people kind of listening to an auditory work or, or to sound art that there's often visuals and for someone like me who who makes things like in a very visual way I thought that was an interesting thing to think about while I was working on my piece I thought about it first as um, a sound piece and and the visuals kind of responding to that as an exercise after I thought about it a lot, but it didn't really start happening till like kind of, I guess sort of the way that things are very unpredictable, just starting to see the way the pandemic went and, and going for walks, um, just something kind of did click in that, that was always in the back of my mind that I'm going to make a piece out of this. I was sort of thinking about how I could suddenly hear sounds from the Yellowhead freeway that I could never hear before. And the fact that when we were staying with family in Telqua, we could hear the trains. And so I was definitely thinking about the idea of sound corridors. So in like just that huge passage of highways, the corridor in itself, and the, the emptiness of the landscapes where I was hearing the train. So it's like suddenly this neighborhood I live in that's usually bustling is suddenly very empty and I could hear the trains or hear, mm. hear these hums. And, and then suddenly being in this really quiet part of, BC, and then the first thing I hear is um, the sound of the train going through the mountains. Um, and then I've also just keep having this repeating sound of like this conversation I had when I was little with my second cousin, and um, he was very upset that my grandpa never 
taught us Welsh, which is like the, the family he came from um, coming from Wales was their Welsh language speakers. And um, they're a member of like this Welsh nationalist group that wanted to, you know, bring back their language into, into schools where that was very much like oppressed for them. So my cousin, he asked me what my favorite bird is. He was teaching me how to translate it. And I can't remember exactly how it was pronounced, but I just remember like in my head over and over, it's, it's swoon differ. And so I was doing a lot of digging, just trying to figure out what that was. And finally came up that it's lake diver. So that was sort of another image I had, something diving into the darkness. Can you maybe talk a little bit about how the drawings relate to the sounds? My background is as a figure of painting, so I always think of figuration. So I was really trying to kind of move away from that and just think about like the movement of sound. In a very similar way, I was trying to draw the sounds I could hear from my balcony and kind of like putting the coordinates and which direction the sound's going to come from. So I felt like the drawings were sort of like mapping that together. But I did feel like at the end when I'm looking at them, they were very figurative and kind of suggestive of, of things, which I kind of, in a way, like, because it was sort of, yeah, like kind of the idea of suggestion of presence. I did feel like it was sort of like a medium with the drawings kind of picking out these presents in the sounds. Do you think people are capable of paying equal attention to the visuals and the sound? I do feel like sometimes one can dominate the other. I did feel with this one making it, I don't know, I, I kind of can feel like they do really complement each other. Um, but I'd be interested to hear what it will, like how people will perceive it without the video. How do you know if your pieces are finished? I just find like as long as I can sit through and I don't want to change anything, um, I'm, I'm happy with that. I feel like I'm, I kind of don't want to overwork these. I'm trying to let them breathe a bit. I think like I'm trying to still approach them the way I do with my paintings. Like I always feel like with my paintings, they're stronger as drawings and I overwork them as paintings. Mm. So I think I, I kind of like sort of still having a bit of the skeleton um, exposed. Is there anything new that you've been kind of looking at or listening to? I've been really listening to Charlotte Hug and I never really appreciate her as much. Um, before, like one of my friends, like when I was in art school introduced me to her and at that time I just really wanted things to have like be heavy and, and more melodic and and going back I really like just how you can hear the wood of the viola and um, another female viola is called Alison Cotton and a lot of her pieces are I don't know there's just a lot of space in them and I feel like that's something I want to start to lean more towards is, is just having more space between things. That was Ian Crutchley in conversation with Caitlin Shion Richards and before that we heard the audio side of her new piece Thlin de Vir. Check out our website, social media, and Vimeo pages for more information about Caitlin and her work. Next up is a new piece by Bouyash Noipen. Originally from Nepal, Bouyash Noipen has become well-known in the Edmonton scene as a performer and composer, devoted to integrating orthodox performance traditions with electronica and ambient music, which he believes will help popularize electrofolk experimentation. He is a core member of Edmonton's Holy Drone Travelers and has collaborated here and elsewhere with a wide array of soloists and ensembles. 
Have you been listening to any music during the pandemic in the last few months that you found really inspiring? Or have you been listening to anything that you've never really listened to before? I've started watching, you know, the Scottish and Irish movies a lot. I think it has more drama and they're very different, very adventurous. And the music wise, for me, like for me, someone like me who is very much new into doing this kind of music, those kind of movies help a lot. Like I, like I found it. Each and every other movie has such a good element of experimentation of instruments. They are so simple and yet very, very tense. I haven't uh, tried to find new music itself to listen to, but I think uh, my approach was more from going with watching new kind of movie, art movies from Ireland and Scotland. Would you be interested in doing music for film at some point or have you already done that? Not for movies itself, but... I think I should be able to do it. I have idea how I would compose stuff for certain kind of themes. Watching these Irish and Scottish movies, it has made me more confident about, oh, yeah. Maybe it's also because there's more of percussion element in their movies. Just one uh, string and then the rest of it is just percussion and everything else. Do you feel like the pandemic has changed the way you're thinking about music or generally about being creative? The thing with, you know, the traditional music from, you know, back home, it's more like our gurus, our teachers. Until they tell you that you are prepared for performing, you know, public performances, we're not allowed. I think that that's more because of our respect for our teachers. Until they tell you to perform, you can. So maybe that way we are so much used to just focusing on making or improving our music itself, practicing, doing all that. So performance wise, I think I haven't been affected that much, like even creativity wise. But then for sure, I think I find myself more worried about But when you're a musician, of course, the one thing that makes you really happy is going out, having, you know, people in front of you performing and then having that interaction. Recently, I had this show with a group, so Marimba Band, and we had our performance and it kind of, it hurt me a lot. Playing music, you look at each other, you smile, you know, you acknowledge something good that's happening. It felt so weird mm-hmm. to sit on the stage, have a mask, and then the audience doesn't know what you're trying to express and all that. It's, it's more uh, emotional thing and not too much related to the music itself. For me personally, if I had to, you know, just like close myself in a room and practice, and I might as well have been, you know, in back home, it would have been the same thing, right? If I was pre practicing and trying to make myself perfect but then maybe yeah, for me it might affect me more because i am here and i'm here all by myself you know my parents are back home and then the one thing that brightens me keeps me positive is that i know oh okay this week or after one month i may have a show and i'm going to meet new people i have a stage where i can go and express myself of course it won't be about Me talking to everyone about how lonely I feel sometimes, how difficult it is to be myself. But then it's just about me trying to express it through my instruments. In the circumstance that we were in where we asked you to write a certain piece and to write a certain length of piece, how did you react to that? What what sorts of things did you think about when you started working on it? I think I was really worried about what I might end up doing because 
you know, like for someone like me who is so much used to each of our performances are at least two hours long, just improvisation, you know, the traditional yes. thing. And then for me, suddenly to, you know, like narrow it down to two and a half minutes. Like, I think it kind of scared me a lot. But then again, I also had to remind myself that I have to forget, totally forget about what I am used to doing and still try to, you know, do something new, make something that's worth listening to two and a half minutes so yeah i think my reaction was actually i think it was more like me challenging myself and me trying to explain to me that two and a half minutes is not that less it's long time it's one of the difficulties is commissioning an improvisation for example i think it'd be interesting to talk about how to do that and i think the next round of commissions we do we will be asking people to do more of those kinds of things the piece that you have brought to us is one movement of a three-movement piece. Could you talk a little bit about the overall idea for the three movements and then maybe a little bit about this individual movement that you have written for us? So usually for me, how it always works is if I have to write a new piece, think about it just before I go to bed. And I think and think and think about it and not directly start writing the planning itself. And the next morning I woke up, I think around seven o'clock. And then the first idea that got into my head was the same thing with pandemic. We musicians being stuck in our room. And my approach to making this piece was me trying to include everything that I would do. I set up three microphones in my room, bedroom itself. And then I had two microphones from cell phone and then one from connected to my laptop itself. And then what I planned was, okay, let me just keep this microphone on and then record everything that I do for two hours and then it was more like meditation for me then that evening to just go through everything just just like for two straight hours listen to everything that I did started making separate clips out of those recordings and then I ended up 57 samples within two hours that at least in a way sounded musical then I thought okay this could work for movement one but then I also had to remind myself that I have just you know two and a half minutes so I ended up using nearly uh, six samples out of those. It was my view on how would a musician who is stuck in a place he's not used to, someone who's very outgoing, you know, likes to be at different places, but he's stuck at his own house for such a long time, which is actually a very positive thing because musicians, we usually complain a lot about, oh, I don't have time to practice. But then at the same time, it's difficult when there's no interaction. So first moment is more about, you know, everything just from my bedroom itself. And are you already working on the other two movements? So movement two will for sure be a little bit more musical. So my idea with the second movement is that have different time signatures at a different pace. So every instrument or any, anything that's being played in 7 by 4 and there's something else, some other instrument or maybe tabla itself, a material being played in a 4 by 4 and just layer it together. And then after three or four cycles, both these time signatures, they meet at a point. And then my idea is more about whatever the pace may be of your life. Everyone has the same destination. You reach there slow or fast and uh, just teach yourself how to have patience. So, so my idea with this piece is advising everyone, not even everyone, it's, it's more about advising myself about how should I lead a very happy content and, you know, peaceful life. 
and know that you can't be worrying about everything all the time. You just do what you do, do what is right. So that's my approach with the second movement. And movement three is more about, because I really love the sound of water and wind. So I have few samples of, you know, like waterfalls and rain and all that from back home. The last piece will again try to get us back into the movement one, but then at the same time, you know, lead it towards the end. Reflections on Composing for the No Normal Commission During the Pandemic by featured artist Bouyash Noypan, followed by his new work of A Vexed Souls. To view multimedia pieces and hear more content from this season, visit newmusicedmonton.ca. This is the No Normal Podcast from New Music Edmonton. I'm your host, Oscar Tsebart. We continue with the next two commissions from NME's New Music for the No Normal Initiative, supported by a grant from the Edmonton Arts Council. The artists in this segment are from two really different parts of the new music spectrum, electronic musician Raylene Campbell and composer George Andrix.
just heard George Andrix's new work, Pot, recorded here by Edmonton Double Reed Virtuoso Beth Levia. For decades, George Andrix has been integral to the new music scene in Edmonton, active as both a performer and composer. He has also taught in many different cities and has been part of countless important new music events. Andrix has worked with musicians as diverse as Leopold Slikowski and Harry Parch. He's been part of the New Music Edmonton organization for many years and recently took up the position of President of the Board of Directors. Ian Crutchley spoke to him recently and began by asking Andrix how he knew he was a composer. Oh, <laughs> when I first figured out that I was a composer was after about two weeks of my first harmony class in high school. And I said, hey, this is how you write music. So I said, there is nothing to this composing stuff. I, I had had quite a bit of theory training in high school. So when I went into freshman theory, I was very fortunate to have a teacher who took me aside and said, you don't need to, to be doing this. Why don't we do some other stuff? So he gave me some, you know, music, real music writing exercises to do and just little experiments in, in composing. And that, I think, kind of got me started. Can you talk a little bit about what kind of a reaction you have? Is there a way that, that it strikes you initially? or Are there specific things that you think about to get going? I suppose this particular one, well, I said, wow, this is great, because I've, I have had in mind a particular piece for solo instrument, in this case, solo oboe. So I said, wow, this is a great opportunity to do something that I've been thinking about doing uh, all along. What kind of things about the oboe were you really interested in? That, that well, I don't know. I, uh, partly it's, it's partly this, uh, this sort of play on words thing that I'm using for, for, the, for the title um, that had gotten me interested in it. Uh, Benjamin Britten has, has written one of the movements of this work was for solo oboe called Pan. And I was I just thought I would really like to write a sequel to that and call it pot. And with the uh, various connotations of the word pot, it kind of puts some other other ideas into my mind of uh, maybe trying to make the listener feel a little bit uh, intoxicated. You know, initially when I talked to Beth, to Beth about it. Uh, we considered doing it for English horn rather than oboe, and we decided it should be for oboe. But then I got to think, after I'd finished the piece, I thought, gee, I'd, maybe I'll, it'd be fun to write another one for, for English horn. And then thinking about, especially in this non-live performance situation, to write one for oboe and English horn, where Beth would play both parts, you know, overdubbing uh, one part on the other. So it, it kind of grew into three pieces rather than one. So what are the titles of the three pieces? Kettle, I think, subject to change without notice. And the, the, the duet, I think I will, I'm going to call Hash, you know, having related to cooking and, and pots and pans and oh, any other thing you want to relate it to. Are all three of them related to Benjamin Britten in any way, other than just being solo pieces? No, but I did use one small little snippet that I put into, into pot. It doesn't have any great influence on the piece. It's just sort of in there. 
With Beth in particular, or really anybody that you've written a piece for, can you talk a little bit about the degree to which you work with them while you're composing or before you compose? It was very helpful to be able to work with her because the initial idea that I had in mind to make this piece sound really strange, weird, and kind of wonky, I got her to try some of the things. It turned out that they absolutely didn't work at all. <laughs> I was thinking about uh, lengthening or shortening the tube by either using a, an English horn vocal on an oboe or an oboe reed directly on English horn, which would make, which I say, well, that's going to make it all out of tune. But it made the whole instrument just so strange that some notes wouldn't even speak. So we looked for other ways of finding notes between notes, you know, bending notes, uh, using weird fingerings that made the notes be out of tune and so on. Do you want to talk a little bit about the kinds of material you were using? I would call it chromatic tonality because I, 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 can't, uh, I can't help avoiding, you know, certain deeply ingrained cadential feelings of certain chord patterns but some other things added to them. I try not to use the same note too many times in a row. My, from my, my serial music training, you know, I want to try to get all 12 of them in there and not have one of them repeated too many times. I am very much like to write music that I like to hear and that somebody else likes to play. There's been a lot of changes in the way you've written over the years for, for either long-term or short-term. Um, is there something that you think is pretty constant? I'm very strongly interested in and rely on the rhythmic structure and drive to create musical interest. I've, much of my music, there has been some kind of jazz influence that sneaks into it. I have always been a kind of a closet percussionist. And whenever I've had the chance, I've you know, played in very percussion ensembles and even on rare occasions, even in, or even in an orchestra. Mostly it's just from hanging around percussionists and being involved in writing and listening to and, and performing percussion music. When you're working on a piece, do you have a sense of where you're going all the time? Do you know how the piece is going to unfold over time? Or, or do you write sort of bar to bar? Sometimes there is a, a technical plan or a particular technique that di dictates what is going to unfold. This was especially true when I was doing more uh, atonal things where you could be almost mathematical and I'd have, you could say, I, you get the formula in your head, then the piece is done. You know, you just have to get it onto the paper in, in the form of these little dots, you know. Do you ever find that you have trouble knowing that the piece is over? I will commonly resort to a recapitulation. <laughs> if for no other reason, it gives you, you've written that music, you can just use it over again. Why not? You know, it's a, it's a tried and true thing that composers have done forever. Uh, but even with that, is it going to go out with a whimper or a bang or, you know, whatever? 
So the ending isn't always obvious, and sometimes it's difficult, it's, you know, to get something that is satisfactory. Are you working on any other compositions at the moment? Before the, the pandemic hit, I had plans to do another birthday concert that the, uh, the Bach Brass was going to do of my, of my music. I have, I have several brass works, quintets, quartets, and so on, but I was also in the process of writing some new stuff for that. Hopefully, I'll get back to finishing up some of, the, some of that music. Mm. But other than that, I don't have any particular projects. Right. Of course, okay. who's to say I might not be through with, with this oboe project yet. There might <laughs> turn out to be more pieces. Two new works by George Andrix, Pot, and Kettle. The performer, Beth Levia, is a renowned oboist and teacher in Edmonton. As part of numerous ensembles and as a soloist, she has been part of countless performances in Edmonton and is deeply committed to commissioning and performing new works for her instruments. These pieces were written for her by George Andrix. Next up, new electronic work by Edmonton's Raylene Campbell, a sound artist who has embraced various creative practices, including improvisation, Composition, performance art, sound and image, public intervention, and deep listening. 
She studied and worked as a freelance artist in New York and Montreal from 2000 to 2009 as a Master of Fine Arts from the Milton Avery Graduate School of the Arts at Bard College and taught in the Department of Music at Concordia University. Our whole situations are changing. I had a very active social life. I really enjoyed living alone. And, and now all of a sudden I'm realizing, oh, actually, you know, I do still enjoy living alone, but I miss people so very much. So that was what inspired me to get a dog. I needed to be around another living being. I don't think it's changing the way I'm thinking about creativity. I think during a time like this, we really need to be compassionate with ourselves and with other people in terms of our moods and our energy levels and what motivation we have to create. And just to find the anchor, I guess, to our creative process that suits how we're feeling in that moment. So for me, this is a new space for me. There's new sounds. I have a dog. There's new experiences. So I think those are the things that I've been paying attention to. That's what I've been listening to. And that's what I've been recording. My creative work has really been capturing sounds, so just recording sounds. And then, of course, the, the piece that I created for your project really was inspired by that work. So I didn't have a plan when I was recording. I didn't have a plan for what I was going to do with it. I was just collecting all of these sounds. And then this opportunity presented itself. And I'm like, this is perfect. <laughs> <laughs> so did you already have a bunch of recordings of sirens and things then? I did. So I live in Chinatown. I'm in a beautiful old historic building. And I'm two blocks from the fire station, police station. And in the other direction, two to three blocks away is the hospital. And I live right on 106th Avenue, which is where all of the first responders drive because it's a wider street and they can drive faster. Mm, yes, right. <laughs> so I get the sirens driving right past my windows and it hurts. Like it hurts my ears, it hurts my body. I feel it. My dog feels it. My environment really was the, the trigger for that particular process. Like this is happening to me. These are new experiences. I'm going to start recording them and see what happens, see if they're, if I get some inspiration out of these these recordings. Maybe I can do something with them. The first sound that I really enjoyed though was um, there's a beautiful when it's windy outside there's this beautiful drone this this sort of hollow it almost the building almost sounds like a giant ocarina it's this yeah it's this beautiful (laughs) hollow low frequency wind sound so that goes throughout the whole piece and I just love that. Like, it's spooky when you're in the space and you hear it. It's, it's, ridic- like, it's just ridiculous. And it's not just my space that creates that sound. It's the other suites as well. So when I'm in the hallway, I can hear similar wind sounds throughout the different suites. So it's, it's like, a, it's like a, the, the building is performing. So that was the first sound that really caught my eye. And that's when I started doing the recordings. And of course, the sirens. And as the weather warmed up, I had all the windows open. And I just kept recording more and more sounds. The ocarina sound from the building is it's in the piece, I think, isn't it? It is. It yes. goes throughout the yeah. entire piece. <laughs> yeah. It's a very concrete sort of piece um very much so uh you know naturally as a geek i spend some of the time listening to it trying to figure out what all the sounds are and and others just enjoying how beautiful it's put together and one of the things that struck me about it is that you are really letting the sirens be the sirens 
you don't attenuate them at all. They they sound like they're going past. And in fact, for some electronic music people who, you know, do music concrete, their instincts are usually to sort of harness the sound and, and, and take control of it. But it seems like in this case, you chose not to. Well, I did. I certainly did process some of the sounds, but I've learned over time to pull back on the delay and reverb. <laughs> I just love playing with delay and reverb. It's so much fun. So there is a little bit of that in there. For this piece especially, I try to keep it natural and keep it real. Yeah, but there definitely is some processing in there. There's some manipulation. It's very intentional and mm. it's very sparse. There's nothing hidden in that sense. So I, it's very clear when you've decided in the piece that there's going to be some kind of manipulation or processing, and then those sirens come in, you know. <laughs> those guys are going right past your house. They're, in they're intense. It sounds like, and honestly, when you're in the space, it sounds like they're coming right through the apartment building. <laughs> So to get back to the creative process and stages of creative process, sometimes I start with the sounds. Sometimes it's the sounds themselves that inspire me. And sometimes it's concept. So sometimes I have a concept that I want to work with, and then I need to determine how do I work through that concept? Like, what are the sounds that I'm looking for that are going to represent the ideas that I'm thinking about that will provide the audience with or the listener with the experience that I want to provide to them? Those are the two different methods I have. Either it starts with the sound or it starts with the concept and then I work the other way. Do you do some of your compositional work outside of the actual machines that you use? Like, do you use notebooks or draw pictures of them? Or simply remember what you want to do. <laughs> Something like <Yeah>. that. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes I'll do it like a, almost like a graphic score, mm -hmm. right? It, it depends on the kind of concept. I actually have an old paradigm schema inspired by Anthony Braxton that I created for myself way back in like 2004. It was part of my MFA work. I'll show you. Have it on a blackboard oh. here. <laughs> oh, very nice. More sculpt sculptural ideas than compositional ideas, but there's definitely some music. So timbre, pitch, duration, rhythm, density, dynamic, velocity, location, gesture. There's um, uh, emotive forms. So anticipation, fear, acceptance, anger, surprise, disgust, joy, sorrow, love. There's literary forms, uh, notion, form, abstraction, semantic, aesthetic, icon, context, engagement, promise, oh, statement, reference, repetition, contrast, transduction, integration, rupture, simplification, juxtaposition, sculptural forms, impulse, continuation, impermanence, expansion, contraction, convergence, divergence, inertia, entropy, and then more sort of uh, psychological ideas, perception, subjectivity, memory, intuition, dream, synesthesia, illusion, ubiquity, agency, and of course there's silence here. So sometimes what I'll do if I have an idea and I, I'm not really sure where, where I want to start with it, I'll take the cards down and shuffle them and draw like three or five cards, kind of like a tarot deck. And it, it gives me a place to start. So sometimes, like I say, I'll um, sketch out a kind of a graphic score. Sometimes it's taking those ideas and just making notes for myself just to jot down ideas that 
that come to my head. And sometimes I'll go through that process a few different times. It's just a, it's a nice tool to have as a starting place for reflection on an idea and how to expand from that, that concept. One of the things that's really interesting that I, I found inspiring for me too was, was just your discussion of the interior world and exterior, which is in your program notes for this piece. Of the artists we're working with right now and who I've interviewed, you're not the first person to talk about sound in relation to you know, the way things have been in the last few months. Did you find much change to the sound world around you? You know, especially in those early days of the pandemic when, when people were at home. Because you live in a very noisy part of the city, generally. I do. And so I moved at the end of December. January, I was just exhausted. So I didn't do a whole lot. I was away in February. And then I came back in March. And things shut down pretty quickly. And of course, I'm super new to this neighborhood. And it's a, there's a lot of vulnerable people in the neighborhood. Things quieted significantly. But what took over are the siren sounds and the sounds of people in distress all hours 24 7 and it's tough it's not easy to to hear it's not easy to see I'm surrounded by it but I think that's here regardless of whether there's a pandemic or not that exists whether we see it or or don't see it it exists it is part of the soundscape of this city but it was definitely quiet and now that things are are sort of back a little bit People are driving to work again a little bit more. So there's more traffic sounds. There's more people sounds. There's a larger variety of sounds. For the, for the longest time, it was just the sounds of people in distress, sirens, and the squawking of gulls around <laughs> Chinatown. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Those were the prominent sounds. Yeah. Um, maybe you could talk about this a little bit. That it isn't an easy piece to listen to in the sense that it's uh, those traumatic sounds of the siren maybe a little bit of sadness from your dog here and there and <laughs> you know <laughs> your works previously that i know haven't had that sort of impact in the, in the same sense this is a different kind of a piece for sure and i have composed similar types of pieces in the past with this piece even though it's inspired by the sounds that i collected there is definitely an intention of discomfort uh, you know, there's the soft sounds, there's the, the soft, intimate, internal home sounds. I really wanted to juxtapose the softness of home with the impact of the sirens, essentially. I mean, that can represent whatever you want it to represent. It could represent the mental health struggles we're having from isolating so much. It can be just the urgency of the sounds themselves, uh, what it means with the fire trucks, the ambulances, the, the, the police. There are thoughts and feelings behind all of those things. There's an urgency, especially with police right now. I very purposefully wanted to give that broad range of very soft to very hard, impactful sounds. It really is a physical piece. It's very visceral. When you listen to it, there's a moment where the sound kind of jolts your body a little bit because it's so intense. And then it, it diffuses a little bit after that jolt. My dog doesn't like those sounds very much either. He likes the big trucks. He likes to chase after big trucks. 
but when when the the sirens are super loud and the the trucks start honking in addition to the siren he just he'll grab a toy and he'll just he'll get all aggressive with his toy and shake his head and so you, you hear a little bit of that so that's my dog trying to cope with the intensity of the sound that's going by that's his that's his process Oh, so we're listening yeah. to your dog listening in a way. Yeah. Never really thought about that before, yeah. actually. It's been really interesting. My dog is very sensitive to sound to the point where I have to be careful what TV shows and movies I watch. If there's any suspenseful sounds or scary sounds or the sounds of people fighting or any of those kinds of sounds, he just, he, he gets very, very uncomfortable. So I've become very conscious of, what I'm watching mm. on TV. <laughs> have you found any particular things to listen to or watch that have been kind of helping you in the last few months in terms of um, either artistically or, or even just, you know, to kind of help, help get through things? I think the thing that's helped me the most is um, morning and evening walks with my dog. I go down to uh, the river Valley twice a day and go for a walk. So first thing in the morning, about seven o'clock in the morning, we just wander. The other day, I heard lots of coyotes howling first thing in the morning, both on both sides of the river. It was really interesting. It's been very peaceful and very, uh, it's, that's what's kept me in shape too. <laughs> Two hours of walking every day. So really having that dedicated time in nature just to hang out with my dog and listen.
We're coming into the second hour of this inaugural episode of New Music Edmonton's The No Normal Podcast. I'm your host, Oscar Zibart. New Music Edmonton is a not-for-profit arts organization and is dependent on a vast array of sponsors, members, and volunteers. Funding for this season's presentations, including this podcast, has been provided by the Canada Council for the Arts, the Alberta Foundation for the Arts, SOCAN Foundation, Canadian Heritage, Alberta Gaming and Liquor, and the City of Edmonton. We thank them all for their generosity and continued commitment to recognizing the vital role that the arts play in our lives. Thanks also to the members, volunteers, and NME board members and staff who keep it all together and happening for New Music Edmonton. That was an excerpt from Wicker Park by American composer Marcus Balter, performed by Edmonton's Alison Balchethis. She's a saxophonist and curator of all kinds of new music events in Edmonton, who has dedicated her performing career to new forms of expression on the saxophone. Balchethis is a member of many ensembles, and also happens to be the outgoing president of New Music Edmonton. Here is a conversation between her and NME Artistic Director Ian Crutchley with a break in the middle to listen to an excerpt from an improvisation between Alison Balchethis and Edmonton flutist Chinoa Anderson. I was trying to remember exactly when I actually met you, February 2010, at a Quasar Quartet concert. Oh, that's cool. We were introduced and quickly discovered that we were both saxophonists, me sort of a lapsed one, and you um, an awesome ongoing one. <laughs> so, but one thing I don't know, when exactly you did arrive in Edmonton and what was happening before that? I moved to Edmonton in the fall of 2007 to start my doctorate in music at the University of Alberta. That took about four years, and as I was finishing up my degree, I got more and more teaching work and it turned into some a full-time position, so all of that just developed into a reason to stay for good. But before that, I was just going to school. I mean, my whole thing was keep going to school until you get all the degrees, and then you can teach at a university. <laughs> oh, yeah, um, <laughs> yeah. You spent some time in France, though, and I, I'm not quite yeah. sure where that is in the sequence. I was, I was just offered the chance to be in this kind of pilot program between the Conservatory of Bordeaux and the University of Bordeaux. And the the goal was to create a North American style master's degree in music. So a pretty equal education um, in the academic study of music and the performance applied study of music. There's some particular things that happened while you were there with regards to saxophone that directed you towards new music, or was that already happening before you went there? It had happened a little bit before, um, but that was a certainly like a fabulous deep end experience. But where I went to school before was at Bowling Green State University in Bowling Green, Ohio. And there, the saxophone professor there, John Sampin, he, 
he is a contemporary music specialist, and, and I didn't know that as a high schooler applying to go to school places. He was just so nice. And the school seemed like a great program, and that was my initial attraction. But then when I started school, I'm realizing that there was a, at least there and, and at a lot of American schools, there might be someone teaching jazz saxophone and someone teaching classical saxophone. And, and John Sampin only taught the classical side. So I felt a need to have to decide. I was also initially drawn to John Sampin anyway. Like I moved to Ohio from Nebraska. So uh, it was a big move and I was attracted to studying with him. And only once I moved there did I realize, oh, there's this other person also teaching jazz. So it, he was kind of the initial reason why I moved to begin with. And then that sort of, it put me on this path. The path could have been pretty classical, but his artistic choices were also really contemporary. And um, it, over time, it, it the more and more I was exposed to this kind of music, to kind of contemporary or avant-garde or experimental sounds, the more I was into it. And also the more I realized how special, at least this this the, the works being written for saxophone, um, how they were really for the saxophone. That's such a big thing. It just felt like no longer are we playing music that's meant, that's really meant for cello or really meant for flute. Is it still possible for you to remember the first really contemporary piece that you learned to play? A lot of my early interest in contemporary music happened to come from composers who ha also were saxophonists. And so Rio Noda had these, um, has a wide breadth of works for saxophone, some of which are these improvisations. And um, and they're, they use a lot of graphic sort of hand-drawn symbols. So there was a new notation to have to interpret, which was super fun. And a way of making these abstract symbols make sense in, in, a, in a kind of a phrasing that I'd never heard before. And that was a challenge to sort of maybe A, be okay with sounds that weren't traditionally pretty <laughs> and and to be okay with that and, and more than to just be okay with that, but to make that compelling. And and then also to to have to reinterpret these literally kind of squiggles on a page or clusters of X's that had to mean something and, and to think of direction and purpose in your musical performance in a totally different way than we'd been trained to. Rio Noda took features of the saxophone that when playing the e-bear would frustrate the heck out of you like oh this clunky mechanism on the saxophone and here I'm yeah. supposed to sound like light as a flute but the, in the Rio Noda's writing he takes the clunky loud mechanisms and it makes it sound like a rain stick where you're executing all these key clicks um, and they're loud and they're beautiful uh, because they suddenly can mimic something in nature or it's just naturally it's part of the saxophone to have these loud mechanics and and he exploited that and, and that felt nice it felt nice to not have to work against something that's inherent to the saxophone yeah, yeah. and you had a lot of sympathy then from your teacher yeah oh yeah John Sampin and then Jean-Marie Landex, who is a French saxophonist, they both said things like, if you're not a jazz saxophonist and you're not interested in contemporary music as a saxophonist, you really are just playing the wrong instrument. What can you say about saxophone that might give an indication of why it's the instrument you play? Mm -hmm. Um. Well, it's in, it was in the family. <laughs> My older sister, Emily, um, she's four years older than me, and she started the saxophone. 
and I think my mom played it in high school. So um, I'm sure that's why my sister picked it up. We would busk on the streets of Omaha, Nebraska <laughs> during the summer nights when there was a lot of people out walking around and, and I had to be good enough to hang with her. And so um, she, she just seriously pulled me up fast. Then pri I took some private lessons, which instantly, you know, makes a person better than, than solely just being in um, the public band programs. But then the bands were also good. Anyways, like there were these opportunities for uh, uh, auditioning for exclusive honor bands and all of that. So anyways, it was, I was really drawn into, I had a good public school band program, great supportive family, a sister who like caused me to get really good really fast. And then um, all these opportunities to like try for these audition-based programs that were fun and competitive. And uh, I was, I guess I, I was also competitive enough that I liked the competitive aspect of that too. So mm. it stuck, it stuck early on. <laughs> but I really did like the idea of in public school of uh, letting the people who want to shine really shine in these like honor bands or solo competitions. And, you know, when we're talking like high school aged or junior high aged, like it's nice because everyone's looking for their outlet the thing that they're good at, I think, at that age. So there were some opportunities there. It was fun. Do you, um, do you feel like a natural performer or is it something you had to get used to? Um, I feel pretty comfortable now. And I'm, I was just thinking, um, I got a lot of performance opportunity really young with my family band. <laughs> um, so with my sister, Emily, and my dad, Matt, um, the three of us would play at the nursing home for um, my mom's parents every major holiday where families get together. We would be at the nursing home in rural Nebraska, and we would bring our instruments. So my dad is an accordionist, and we would play, I mean, like jazz standards, show tunes, lots and lots of polkas in it. That was an exposure that that helped. And then the busking with my sister on the streets was another kind of claiming your space and being comfortable with kind of distraction. <laughs> and then marching band, even as much as I hated marching band so much um, for the just the lack of artistic output, I, I felt. <laughs> At least it was um, another opportunity where you really had to practice your presentation and you mm -hmm. had to look sharp and you had to, because I mean, literally people were judging you in these competitions <laughs> that we did. So that was another, I think another opportunity where we practiced being polished and, and um, looking the parts. Was marching band mandatory? Yes, it was oh, mandatory. Yeah. Oh, it was rough. It was so rough. It was every fall in high school. So for four years, every fall throughout the football season, kids, it was tied to football, of course. <laughs> and <laughs> oh, I hated it so much. But, um, uh, you know, as soon as that was over, we went into like the sit down concert band experience where we were actually playing music that I was interested in. <laughs> and so you, you wouldn't want to claim that, you know, marching band was the making of you. No, you know what though? Uh, maybe one thing I did take away from Marching Man was how to walk and play at the same time without, oh. you know, the the ability to take steps like rolling your feet, rolling your heels so that you wouldn't like chip a tooth with the horn in your mouth, right. which yes. I have now maybe taken into our work as like walking improvisers, you know, improvising with dance and moving sure. around, yeah. how to walk and play safely. So yes. I, I do always have like little marching band flashbacks. Do you have a rough estimate of how many new pieces you've either premiered, commissioned, or, or performed? Over 70. 
a lot of it happened with a court, a saxophone quartet I was in. We commissioned and, and had lots of pieces written for us. In 2014 and 2015, I went to Brazil twice to work with a composer, Andre Mestre. Okay. He, he had me come down and play pieces that undergraduate level students in a couple cities in Brazil would write for saxophone because from his experience knew that there just weren't a lot of performers interested in, in playing young composers works. So that was probably 30 pieces came out of those two years. And some of them really great, really great. Anyway, so a lot of pieces, a lot of my experience comes from working with composition classes. And then, um, and working with composers who are just, you know, relatively new at writing, maybe at least for saxophone. And then um, in my ensembles, like especially with lately with Ultraviolet, this quartet with Roger Admiral on piano and Shanoa Anderson on flute and Amy Nicholson on cello, we um, we didn't find repertoire for these four instruments. So saxophone, flute, cello, piano. We've had to commission everything, pretty much everything we play. Yeah. So why, why do you think that it's important to keep commissioning new pieces? Because we're still just living, <laughs> like we're still continuing to live and as people and things need to still be said about our lives and artists are the people who say those things. And I like the relationship of working with composers. Um, so I just feel an urge to keep doing that. I firmly believe that we definitely need to make art for the times that we live in. I don't assume that when you meet a composer, you just want to play a new piece by them no matter what. What kinds of things in a composer are you most interested in that makes you kind of start to think about wanting to do a piece by that person? I'm interested in composers who use non-traditional timbres on whatever instruments they're writing for, typically. Composers who really eke out and elicit really special things about each instrument they write for. I'm, I'm attracted to really visceral, gut-wrenching, gripping ideas, and also ephemeral, foggy, beautiful, sensitive ideas as well. So it's it could spread the whole gamut in terms of maybe intensity, but um, just thoughtful writing about the unique qualities of the instruments they're writing for. You also do lots of improvising. So in terms of improvisation, do you, can you let us know a little bit about what that means to you? When I improvise with others, I'm usually thinking about what's being laid down already. How can I contribute that isn't redundant or overpowering? Um, that's especially important in our sextet damn magpies where there are six of us and everyone has an instrument that sort of plays a different part i constantly am feeling like kind of threading the needle of like okay we got this maybe background texture we've got the little mechanical bleeps and bloops and we've got some airy things and maybe i can provide x if i just sort of thread the needle and weave my way in here occasionally i'll take a risk of being the one who just like cuts you know chops through and just immediately imposes a stark idea it's um but it's it's maybe it needs a comfortable I, I would have to be pretty comfortable with a person with an improviser to kind of lay down that brutal of a change of a statement mm -hmm. a sort of railroading over their thought which is from the listener's perspective is pretty cool when those moments happen so i want to make sure that that person i'm playing with doesn't feel like i just shut them up <laughs> <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.
This is the No Normal Podcast from New Music Edmonton. Back now to our conversation with Alison Belchettis. So let's let's turn a little bit to New Music Edmonton then, since it's been mentioned already. With 10 years retrospect, if you could maybe name a few of the things that you think have been important as achievements for you and the organization in the time that you've been involved. We, I think, over time have learned to recognize and show valuable amazing important musicians who come from all kinds of trainings and backgrounds and practices who are extremely pushing of the envelope um, in ways that I with my very academic background 
um, have never come across. And I'm, I'm, I'm so much richer for it. And I think NME is too, because I think NME did start as a group of people who came out of university music training and, and put on shows of their own work. That's valuable and, and um, noteworthy and important. And then furthermore, um, branching out and presenting artists, uh, not just musicians, but dancers and installationists who work with sound. So people who work with sound in different ways. And, and that's like one of the things I'm most proud of is that we focused on kind of contemporary experimental avant-garde yada yada sound. <laughs> um, and sometimes that comes from a violin or sometimes it comes from several wires plugged into a box. And sometimes <laughs> that comes from a box of kitchen gadgets that someone is manipulating in some way. And yeah, uh, that's that's like overall a major thing I'm so proud of. Secondly, would be, I think it has a reputation for presenting and being transparent about how they present and who they present. It's a little chaotic, isn't it, what we do? Yeah. <laughs> but in kind of in a nice way, I think. No, in a great way, yeah, yeah. for sure. Yeah. And well, and especially lately. I think it's safe to say that without your presence, our current priority to equity and accessibility would not be the priority that it is. I wonder if you want to talk about it and maybe talk about some of your views, how they may have changed over the years, and what kind of role you think New Music Edmonton or any arts organization can play. I think of other board members who've been really pushing us to widen our diversity in our programming and accessibility. Holly Pickering was on our board, and Vanessa Yamel is currently on the board. They've both really educated me personally only ever majoring in music. I'm pretty narrow in my education. And so people cycling on and off the board in, over the course of 10 years taught me about the, well, the different kinds of diversity. The gender diversity in programming easily comes to mind for me. And with a lot of great work, NME has achieved gender parity in, in their programming of performers and composers. It's funny because it's like, it doesn't feel like it was so hard to just shift our thinking with regards to gender. And we did that a couple years back, at least. So, I mean, which is, again, not soon enough, but still earlier than many, <laughs> let's say. Mm -hmm. But then further to that, I mean, that's not enough. It's just not enough. And so our other board members, I think, have done a great job of opening my eyes as to looking outside of my narrow experience as a classically trained musician. That whole canon is, again, extremely narrow. So um, it was an I didn't know what I didn't even know situation. Sure, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but mm -hmm. and, and so like lately, what's our um, our challenges are, I think, striking a balance between having an open call for pre for for what we present, but also knowing that lots of people don't feel welcome to apply for these open calls because of, well, the history of what um, organizations like ours or organizations in general present. Why would someone as a black person feel that they should be applying to these things since the roster for the past, you know, 100 years doesn't really show people like them? So it's striking a balance between open calls and asking people who are amazing, would you please consider being on our season. A mark of your leadership is the fact that you have learned from people who have come onto the board and, and from other things. And board meetings have been classroom often as much yeah. as anything. I was thinking about 
the importance of arts organizations having diverse boards, a diversity of practices too. So not just a board of musicians, uh, for example. It starts from how, the, how these organizations are comprised and who's got the power. One of the topics that everybody talks about every day now is the mm -hmm. pandemic. Yes. Um, <laughs> yeah. And New Music Edmonton has been affected by it just like everybody. We've all been affected by it individually. And it's been um, a rough ride for us all in the arts. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, we're still kind of in the thick of it, really. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I wonder if you had any reflections on the last sort of eight months of New Music Edmonton partly, but, you know, also parallel to that, your work as a teacher and as a performer. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think I'm probably most proud of, <laughs> of those three veins. I'm most proud of New Music Edmonton's work. Um, just literally making, getting art made. Um, what is it, 15 or 20 commissions will be happening this year so far yeah, yeah like yeah, so far. <laughs> getting art made um so enemies com commissioning 15 to 20 i think p new pieces of music um moving their presentations online like that's that's you know a, a fabulous way to adapt and to still pay artists um to still make work um i mean in the other veins of my life um performing I've been really struggling with like um, motivation of practicing even. Mm. Um, this recording project I'm doing has been hard to like force me to practice. And I just, it's been, it sucks practicing at home. It's not where I normally practice. Actually, I almost never practice at home. I kind of liked the ability to go to an office. That was, I and mean, that's something I'm really lucky to have had as a different place to work. Mm -hmm. um, and sort of get serious and focused there. So it's hard. It's hard making art here. It's hard making art now. <laughs> and it's yeah. also hard making art here. Um, but I think just literally booking recording sessions is sort of the one thing that's been like dragging me forward. It, and it feels like it's dragging me. It's definitely hard. It's really hard. That's all. I mean, there's no sugarcoating that. And then the teaching, I'm really happy to see that over the course of the summer, everyone has acquired at least fine to excellent um, technology to sound okay in their homes and have lessons over Zoom, which is how I'm doing all of my teaching. One-on-one -on -one lessons, they can happen okay. They happen fine enough. Um, I definitely miss being able to play bad piano along with my students on saxophone. <laughs> I can chunk along on the piano in my office at school and accompany them poorly on their mm. repertoire just to work on intonation and learning a little bit what the accompanist part is like. Um, we don't get to do that, and I really miss that. That's been f something that uh, we just can't really make make do we, we can't work around and figure out a way it's kind of astonishing how adapted we've become to all of this yeah. yet you know that adaptation comes with this overhanging feeling of darkness and sadness that um, yeah but trying to think a bit more optimistically about it do you foresee some possible changes to the new music world that might come out of the period that we're in that that actually will be progressive 
I'm sure. I'm sure. If only because it's normal now to reach each other over mediums like Zoom <laughs> or things like this, whereas before it might have been a poor replacement. But now it's the only thing we have. And we're realizing, well, we'd I'd rather something than nothing. I think I've gotten to see things that I that I only probably would have paid attention to if I could see it in person. Um, I, mm -hmm. I'm now like widening my interests a bit more because uh, we're all getting our experiences and interactions online. And so I, I think if everyone's doing that a little bit, that that's going to affect artists and, and the work that they make for the better, um, that they're trying, they're reaching out in different ways and seeing things that they may not have considered to see if it was unless it was in person. Even more literally, Erin Rogers, saxophonist mm -hmm. who's from Alberta and now lives in New York, and her group Thing New York have made like Zoom operas, uh, mm -hmm. at least two, I think, over the summer. So there are people who are using this as a new tool, a, a new like artistic tool. And that's, that's really cool. That's awesome. Over the last few months, I've had occasional discussions with people talking about the idea of productivity and that perhaps in the time leading up to March, we were emphasizing productivity with artists that the emphasis had to be on the finished thing rather than the process. Mm -hmm. We've seen, for example, the Edmonton Arts Council has been extraordinary in making their grants available simply for the purpose of artists to work, not necessarily to produce something finished. Yeah, it's amazing. It really is that grant organizations saw the value and sort of like what Enemy is doing, of seeing the value in, in getting money into artists' hands because they do amazing things with it. And to de-emphasize the live concert, to put it in the process, it is remarkable. I won't say it's a gift or it's a fabulous thing because the circumstances are terrible, but it's remarkable that we can think about process rather than end product. It's a major rejigging of how artists think about what they do to force the slow down, to be given that gift of just, of time. Well, to be able to survive, <laughs> you know? Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's foundational. It's amazing. So what if I was to give you that gift? Let me, um, <laughs> let me say that I am the EAC, the Alberta Foundation for the Arts and the Canada Council combined. And I said to you, whatever money you need to support your work for two years, what would you do? In other words, if you had sort of a dream project or projects, mm -hmm. what, what do you think they might be? I would really want it to center around this group I'm in right now, Ultraviolet. It would, I would want that to be a core thing. The group has had to work so hard to get repertoire that it, if we could really inject some amazing sounds into this group's repertoire, but then also bringing in production designers, a really creative person to work with lighting and the stage. I mean, even simple things. I remember when I was studying in Bordeaux, my saxophone teacher, her name was Mary Bernadette Charrier. She had this chamber ensemble called Proxima Centauri. And they put on this amazing show. Well, they regularly put on amazing shows, but one in particular was this chamber group um, in a sort of industrial performance space. And there was an abstract white metal sculpture made of just kind of rectangular strips of metal that were all painted white hanging from the ceiling. 
And for, I don't know, the first half hour of the concert, nothing happened. But eventually you noticed that this thing was like slowly turning and rotating. And that kind of blew my mind it, because it worked with the music in a way. I think they had in-house a kind of set designer person. And so their shows always looked beautiful. And so I would, I want to put more attention on the look of the shows that I would be doing. One thing about Edmonton is space, you know, finding a, a nice space to play in. The problem is it's, it's a challenge to find an appropriate size that still looks cool, still looks professional and, and kind of neat. And so what we end up doing a lot in Edmonton is playing in churches. And I don't like that I don't have the power to design that space. I'm eternally grateful to some of these churches in Edmonton for how generous they are. A space of that size for the rate, the, the fees that churches, some of these churches charge, that is to say really low fees, is, is a gift. It's incredible. Mm. But oftentimes it doesn't jive with the aesthetic of the music that I'm playing and I would really love a space to also work with the music and so that would be sort of a dream <laughs> yeah uh, yeah yeah that would be a dream so if you if you were to do a like a solo recital with a stage director lighting director and so on what do you have any idea of the kind of music you'd want would you like to commission new pieces or do a combination of the various groups and solo things you're doing yeah, I was. I think I even said this jokingly recently that it would be so cool to have a con. It would be cool for me. This might sound totally self-indulgent, but it would be cool to have like a concert of um, with every group I'm in, maybe one piece per group. So I'm in a saxophone quartet, ultraviolet quartet. We have damn magpies, the sextet that improvises. And then it could be improvising combinations of smaller groups. So I would love it to include improvising. I would love it to include some new pieces. And then like some of these amazing contemporary works that I never got around to for whatever reason. You know, it, there's sometimes outside forces that push a person to play pieces that maybe come from nearby. We're celebrating Canadian composers, which I totally believe in. Um, but maybe that means I haven't paid attention to or gotten to all the American composers I've been interested in or um, or European things that I never got to. Maybe those like European staple pieces that I didn't get to play all of, but maybe there are a few that I still would love to play. Yeah. <laughs> We've been listening to a conversation with Alison Balchetis, saxophonist and outgoing president of New Music Edmonton. At the top of this segment, we heard Wicker Park by Marcus Balter, followed by an excerpt from a recently recorded improvisation by Alison Balchethis and Chinoa Anderson, and concluding with some sounds from False Transitions by Hunter Brown. The works by Brown and Balter were both written for Alison Balchethis. You are listening to the No Normal Podcast, and I'm your host, Oscar Tsebart. Concluding this episode, we're going to visit with one last piece from NME's New Music for the No Normal Initiative, which saw the organization commissioning 12 new works with the assistance of a grant from the Edmonton Arts Council. Our final feature is a work by Rio Uhl, 
He's a composer from this region and is currently studying composition at the University of Alberta. We'll start with some thoughts from Ool and then listen to the piece. When I'm thinking about how I work, a lot of the work I do is spent in isolation and a lot of the composition is done with a kind of an abstraction, like a little bit of a separation from the performance. I like to think of my pieces existing outside of this concert realm and more as being able to function on its own, within its own kind of world. Talking about working in isolation, and, and it's interesting, I like hearing you talking about the piece having its own life and its needs and so on. I'm also a composer, and I think sometimes we get asked about or we think about, does the piece exist without being performed? So. How do you feel about your pieces that way? Are you a composer that feels that the piece is complete when you finish it, or do you feel that it needs to have the performer's input and um, some kind of either live or recorded performance? I've been thinking about that a lot too. I like the idea of having it be complete on its own, but for me, there's only so much I could do in order to make it as complete as it wants to be. Oddly enough, this piece was different in pieces I've done before in that I've actually tried to rely more on the performer's input. I, I try to get more kind of co correspondence going mm -hmm. more than I have in other pieces, but it's it's more like an email kind of thing right. and asking questions and receiving answers and recordings and things like that and try to make a piece that fits the instrument and the performer in a way that I wouldn't have been able to do with my own knowledge. And I think that's really helped. But in terms of whether it's complete when it's performed, I have a personal rule that if there's something that's going to be performed, I'd rather have it be finished when it's performed than continue working on it simply for well, my own mental health but also just as a, as a way to get myself to get it finished and out there in the world in some form or fashion. And so it kind of passes on to uh, the other people. But I believe a piece can have life without it being performed. Could you talk a little bit about how this piece works in terms of the performer and what they do with the score? Yeah, so there's a series of instructions and some of the some notations just to give the performer a little bit of a clear idea of what to do with the instructions. There's, a, there's an amount of time that each of the instructions uh, incorporates or kind of lives in. So the performer will choose uh, a certain number of the instructions and what order they can be in. I'm sort of very uh, loose with what they can do with that, with each line and the performer improvises on those instructions in the amount of time that the, I guess, that little module lives in. I think each of them are 25 seconds long. Performer chooses uh, around six of them. I think the piece is two minutes and 30 seconds long. So at most they could choose six different ones. They could choose three and three and then go back and forth between them. They could do whatever they want with the instructions. But the, the point that I wanted to impose on the performer is that they choose the instruction and very closely follow that within the time frame allowed and improvise on that material that the instructions specify. Numi's Gedmonton commissioned this as being a two and a half minute piece, but does this score have to be only two and a half minutes or or could you imagine that the compo the performer could do the the modules for a longer period of time yeah absolutely I, I like to think of my pieces as having that kind of flexibility but uh because because that uh 
two minutes and 30 seconds kind of boundary was set upon me. I, I, was, I was thinking more about in ways that I could put that in the piece somehow. And maybe maybe it even informs the performer's choices to have just that little moment in order to make decisions more carefully. But I, I can't imagine it being longer. Maybe it'll have a different effect if it's longer. Yeah, I could understand that because I, you know, looking at the different modules and, you know, I'm sort of thinking that if I was going to perform this for two and a half minutes, it would be one thing. But, you know, I would be thinking about the narrative a lot differently if it was longer. I wonder, do you imagine there is a time limit to something like this? Or could you <laughs> could you conceive of this being, if it was physically possible, even being a multi-hour long performance? Or would that just be way too much? I don't think of of, of music being too much, <laughs> <laughs> nice. especially these days. Yeah. Yeah. There's there's yeah there's no really a limit I can conceive of. Mm. There's no real if <laughs> if a performer wants to do that, I'd be happy. I'd be happy to let somebody. When we approached you, um, in, I think it's as far back as April, wasn't it now? Yes, it was. <laughs> when we approached you in April, you came back pretty quickly saying that bass flute was the instrument you wanted to work with. Was that, uh, is that something you'd been planning on writing for for a while, or was it just the first thing that you thought of that you wanted to work with? Yeah, it was pretty much the first thing I thought of. I didn't really have any ideas for bass flute in particular because I had the choice of what instrument. I pretty anxious about what I was going to do. If it was perhaps a different instrument like piano or cello or something, I don't know if it would have been the same piece, but I wanted to choose something that I was unfamiliar with and perhaps could make something very specific for. Bass flute just popped into my mind. I really love the bass flute instrument. And I had never thought of writing a piece for it in solo instrument for bass flute. So that was kind of the first instinct I went with to sort of just make a decision. I guess it was it was more of an imposition that I could feel like it came from the outside that I put on me. And then I could continue with that. It's always a good dialogue with composers talking about what happens when these restrictions come in, either time-wise or the instruments and so on. And I know for me, it's a constant need when I'm starting a piece to just gradually eliminate as many decisions as possible so I don't have unlimited decisions all the time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so when somebody tells <laughs> you or you decide it's bass flute, then that, that certainly focuses it on something very clear. Because the score is full of very idiomatic bass flute techniques. And um, mm -hmm. um, there's a couple of other elements in um, the score that I'm interested in hearing about. There are two different texts in the score. One is a program note, and the other one is a text that should be read silently by the performer before they yeah. perform. And could you talk a little bit about the yeah. program note um, for a start and about the idea of liminal space? Something that I was thinking about with this piece, which is different from how I thought about other pieces before it was creating an atmosphere. I like the atmosphere of mystery. And I was thinking about this last night when an idea comes to me, the excitement I get from thinking about the idea coming to life is kind of similar to when you're encountering a mystery that you'd like to solve or like to see to its end. And when I see images of liminal spaces, it's kind of like this feeling of unease and mystery that maybe you'd get from watching a David Lynch film. It's kind of a surreal, odd feeling. And it does have some relevance to 
the way things are in our reality. In fact, they always have that kind of presence in our lives. The liminal spaces, which are like these always present but never seen entities, but they just exist as spaces in our society. And something I wanted to get at with this piece is perhaps just capture a kind of feeling in a moment. That's how I like to think of my pieces as just a specific thing happening in a moment or a specific, just a specific piece of time. That program note was just a way for me to introduce a different element to the moment that people didn't know how it could fit into the rest of the score of what the performer's thinking about or what the, the setting they're in, just to introduce a little bit of surrealness and mystery to that performance. I think that that is one thing that I like to do a lot and is just to kind of throw things off a little bit and get people to wonder what what this thing has to do with the rest of the thing and maybe it doesn't maybe it does it just sets up an activity in their brain so they're receptive to something yeah yeah so then there's this other attack which is intended for the performer to silently read to themselves at the time of performing and and can you talk about text a little bit and also maybe a little bit about how you think that might function with the performer I wanted it to function the same way that the program note would for the audience, except for the performer. There's a clash between the program note reveals itself to the audience in this kind of odd descriptive Wikipedia page kind of description. But the program note would um, set up an atmosphere in the performer's mind that perhaps directly contrasts the text that the audience would know about. I tried to create a kind of surreal and calm moment in the performer's mind that they could think about while they're performing that has to do with the bass flute and the kind of feeling that would like the piece to have on the performer while they're performing it a kind of specific but kind of isolated feeling that they're exploring this situation and the piece unfolds in kind of the same way that the text describes it as but in a more abstract kind of way have you had a text like this for performers before in a piece no not not really usually my pieces are exactly what they are it's the score and maybe that the atmosphere is created from from in in their own mind while they're performing it but i was trying to create a different approach with this piece usually the the piece in my mind starts as a format or a concept but this piece started as more of the idea as the as the atmosphere and i tried to kind of meet it in the middle from like the top level which would have been that atmospheric kind of idea and the bottom which would be the concept of the piece and try to meld them together in some way that would work it'd be interesting to find out from the performer how this impacts their performance i'm sure it will that was composer rio ul in conversation and now here is his new work alone time with bass flute composed this year for flutist Chinoa Anderson. Anderson herself is a nationally renowned artist who has performed and recorded dozens of new works in her career. A quick note about the following piece. Please be advised that there is approximately half a minute of silence at the start of this work. This section is intentionally written into the score with the instruction that the performer begins by silently reading a text.
That was Chinoa Anderson performing Alone Time with bass flute by composer Rio Ul. We've come to the end of this edition of No Normal. Thank you to all of the artists for sharing their thoughts and their works. To learn more about our programming, please visit newmusicedmonton.ca. We are a not-for-profit organization fueled in part by our memberships and donations. Members receive updates via our newsletter, and memberships cost $1 for 2020. Watch out for our next episode dropping in a few weeks' time when we focus on New Music Edmonton's Now Hear This Festival Autumn Edition. In the meantime, check out our website, social media, SoundCloud, and Vimeo pages for more information and more music. The No Normal Podcast was created by Caitlin Sean Richards and Ian Crutchley and produced and hosted by me, Oscar Zibart. Farewell for now. Stay safe in these strange times. And so long.